The paper wasn't out yet. All they had was the abstract. Fortunately, one of the members on the abstract committee was a number theorist, John Selfridge, whom I had worked with at UCLA. He told the committee, I know this guy, and if he says it's true, it is almost undoubtedly true. I only found out about this a few years later when, by pure chance, we were both on the same plane, and he told me what had happened. When I arrived for my talk, I was expecting maybe 40 or 50 people to show up for a fairly sedate presentation. Instead, the room was overflowing with about 300 people. I guess it shows that mathematicians are more interested in blackjack than people think. Actually, a good part of the audience didn't look like mathematicians. They had sunglasses on and pinky rings, so I gave my talk. At the end of the talk, I had about 50 copies of my paper to hand out. As soon as I was finished, the audience just surged for the papers. I dropped them on the podium and took off out the back. There were a lot of reporters who were very interested in my talk. One of the reporters was Tom Wolfe. The Tom Wolfe? Yes, white suit and all. He interviewed me and was very excited about it. He wrote a story for the AP Wire, which set off a furor. 20,000 letters rained into the MIT math department. I had all six secretaries answering letters. I didn't estimate how long it would take to answer all the letters, just like at first. I didn't estimate how long it would take to do the calculations for my original blackjack betting system using a desk calculator. After the secretaries had soldiered through answering several thousand letters, I was finally told, much to my relief, You're tying up the entire math department. We can't do this anymore. I also had people calling who wanted to bankroll me. One particular persistent caller was a fellow from New York named Emanuel Kimmel, who claimed he knew his way around the gambling world. He wanted to bankroll me with $100,000. I decided to meet with him. One evening in February, on a typical terrible Boston weather night, a midnight blue Cadillac pulled up, and two attractive young blonde women wearing fur coats got out. They were followed by Kimmel, who appeared to be about 65 years old, on the short side, with a shock of white hair, and wearing a large cashmere coat. He came into the house and introduced the young ladies as his nieces. My wife Vivian looked at them suspiciously. I guess she wasn't buying the niece story. Vivian was much more perceptive, but I was willing to accept it at face value. Kimmel asked me a lot of questions about blackjack and then asked me to demonstrate the system. After a couple of hours, he decided to go ahead. After your book, Beat the Dealer, which revealed your blackjack system to the public, was published and became a bestseller, were the casinos beginning to lose money as a result? What happened was this. There were a number of really good players, maybe a thousand or so, who extracted money from the casinos. Then there was a much larger number of players who used the basic strategy so they could play much longer without losing as much. And finally, there was a much larger number of people who heard that you could beat the game, but were poor players. As a result of an influx of new players, blackjack became the most popular casino game. The casinos might have had a thousand or so blackjack players who made one hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars a year, and maybe ten thousand players who weren't losing as much. 
But on the other hand, they might have had one million players who thought they could win when they couldn't and were losing more because they were playing longer. The upshot was that the casinos really had a good thing, but they thought it was a bad thing. They started a war with the card counters. They tried to ban them. They beat up some of them. Do you know people who were beat up? Oh, yeah, Ken Ooston was a well-known blackjack team player who was taken into the back room and had his cheek broken. He wrote a book about his experiences. There were also books by other people. The casino brutality was pretty well documented. Did you ever see a movie called Casino? Sure. Was the depiction of Las Vegas in that movie accurate? Yes, very much so. That's the way it was in the 1970s. In the 1960s, when I was playing, it was worse. And yet you had no fear. Well, I didn't know a lot of this stuff then. Given the use of multiple decks and reshuffling, is it still possible for a skilled player to get an edge in blackjack? It was still possible through the 1990s. The movie 21 is an example of that. The MIT players on whom that movie was based actually just used my system. The tens count system? They used the complete point count, which counts high cards as negative one, low cards as positive one, and divides by the total number of unseen cards. Is that the best approach you came up with? Yes. It is provable that the complete point count system is approximately the best possible system at an equivalent level of simplicity. The ten counts system used to be about as good, but as the casinos went to multiple decks and reshuffling, the advantage of the complete point system began to grow. The rule of thumb is if they shuffle the deck halfway through, you can still win, but it is too much work for too little money. If they shuffle two-thirds of the way through, that is just fine. What was the first time you tried your blackjack system in a casino? first time was during spring vacation at MIT in 1961. I went with Kimmel, who was Mr. X in the book, and his friend Eddie Hand, who was Mr. Y in the book. Did you know about their mob associations at the time? No. Hand seemed like a rough type, but I thought that was just his gruff manner. Both of them were very wealthy. When I was in Kimmel's Manhattan apartment practicing before we went on our gambling trip to Reno and Tahoe, he complained that he lost $1.5 whenever it snowed in New York because he owned 64 parking lots in Manhattan. Hand owned a trucking business, which years later he sold to Ryder Industries, and I know his warrants alone were worth $47 million because I was following the warrant market at the time. What was your experience on the first trip with them? They wanted to put up $100,000. I had a high degree of confidence in the theory, but I had never played for real money. I didn't know what surprises the casinos may have in store for me. I wanted to first prove that the system worked in practice rather than trying to make an enormous amount of money. So I talked them down to starting with $10,000. I started out by betting $1 on the bad hands and a maximum of $10 on the good hands. It drove them crazy because they were looking to make some big money. I disciplined myself and paced myself. It was a lesson about managing money that stuck with me forever after. Which was, don't bet more than you are comfortable with.
Just take your time until you're ready. After about eight hours of betting $1 to $10, I got comfortable. Then I went to $2 to $20 for about two hours, and that felt comfortable. Next, I went to $10 to $50 for about one hour until that felt comfortable. Then I upped it to $25 to $300 and got used to that after an hour or two. Finally, I increased it to $50 to $500. You couldn't bet any higher than $500. I played for a total of about 20 hours at the two higher levels and predicted that my $10,000 bankroll should be doubled during that time. We actually made $11,000, which was extremely close to the prediction. How did you make the transition from roulette and blackjack to looking for edges in the market? Knowing that people were wrong about casino games being unbeatable made me stop and think. If you can beat roulette and you can beat blackjack, what else is there? The next game I looked at was Baccarat. I could prove that the main game was not beatable, but the side bets were. At that time, I had moved from MIT to Mexico State University. I took a trip with the head of the math department, the university comptroller, and our wives to test out this baccarat system in the casinos. I tried to be inconspicuous, but on our first night at the baccarat table, I was recognized by one of the readers of my book, who said, hey, that's the guy who wrote the book. The casino people overheard this, and one of them ran over to the phone to call upstairs for instructions. He came back to the table laughing and told the pit boss, let them play. This idiot thinks that just because he can win at blackjack, he can win at baccarat. We'll show him a thing or two. I set the bet size so that we would win about $100 an hour because I knew they wouldn't stand for much more than that. I just wanted to prove that we could do it. I won about $100 an hour for six hours. The casino was fine with that, and they thought it was just luck. We came back the second night and again won about $100 an hour until closing time. Now they were getting less friendly. They put shills on either side of me to watch my every move. Then they got the idea that I was marking the cards. The pit boss and some other people scrutinized the cards, but they couldn't find anything because there was nothing to find. On the third night, they were friendly again and asked if I wanted coffee, which I accepted. I drank the coffee, and then I noticed that I couldn't follow the count. My head felt really funny, and I got up and left, letting my colleagues to do the playing. My colleague's wife was a nurse, and she told me that my pupils were dilated like those of a drug addict. They plied me with coffee and walked me for hours to get me back into shape. The next night we went back, and they offered me coffee again. Why did you keep going back to the same place? There were only two places with Baccarat in town. I declined the coffee and asked for just a glass of water instead. Why did you ask for anything? Why didn't you just say you weren't thirsty? I figured whatever they were using, they would put it in the water and I would be able to tell what it was. I put a drop of water on my tongue and it tasted like someone had emptied a box of baking soda into it. That drop was enough to put me out again. I left and they told my colleagues that they didn't want them or me playing there anymore. We had one day left before heading back, so we went to the other casino. Since it was our last day, I said we might as well take the gloves off and play for a thousand dollars an hour. We played for two and a half hours and made twenty-five hundred dollars. 
The owner walked up with one of the largest security guards I have ever seen and said, we don't want you playing here anymore. I asked, why not? He said, no reason, we just don't want you here. So we left. The next day, on our drive home, the accelerator locked in the down position on a mountain road and the car couldn't be stopped. The car sped up to 80 on this curvy mountain road. It sounds like straight out of a movie. It does, he laughs. I had the presence of mind to downshift as much as I could, turn off the key, step on the brake, and pull out the emergency brake. I was able to bring the car to a stop. We had a flag on the car, and a good Samaritan who knew about cars stopped to help us. He looked down under the hood and said, I have never seen anything like this accelerator rod. Something had fallen off to make the accelerator rod lock down. He was able to temporarily fix it so we could drive home. I guess the other passengers in the car must have been quite panicked. Well, we could have been killed. Why would the casino have tampered with your car after they had already banned you from the premises? I can't tell you it was tampered with. All I can tell you is what happened. We got off on a tangent. I had asked you about how you made the transition from casino games to markets. After my successful casino games, I also developed a system for beating Wheel of Fortune. I got to thinking about games in general and thought, the biggest game in the world is Wall Street. Why don't I look at and learn about that? I knew almost nothing about the market. In 1964, I decided to spend the summer learning about the stock market. I read everything from barons to books, such as the random character of stock prices. After a summer of reading, I had a lot of thoughts about what to do and what to analyze. Were any books particularly helpful? Most of them were helpful in the negative. For example, technical analysis by Edwards and McGee was very helpful in the negative. What do you mean by helpful in the negative? I didn't believe it. The book convinced me that technical analysis was a road not to go down. In that sense, it saved me a lot of time. But one could come up with a rational explanation of why chart analysis might work, namely that the charts reflect the net impact of all the fundamentals and the psychology of all the market participants. You can't prove a negative. I can't prove it doesn't work. All I can say is that I did not see enough substance there to pursue it. I didn't want to take time to try things unless I thought they were pretty good. So after your summer of reading and research, what avenues did seem worthy of exploration? I didn't come with much after that first summer, and everything was on hold for the academic year. The next summer, I continued my research into the stock market. One hot and sunny June day, I was sitting under the shade of a tree in my backyard, and in my first hour of reading, I came across a periodical called RMH Warrants and Low Price Stock Survey by Sidney Freed. I think the publication still exists. His son runs it now. I realized that the pricing of warrants should be mathematizable. The huge amount of variables that might apply to trying to forecast stock prices were almost all eliminated if you focused on warrants instead. I wrote down a short list of the factors that I thought should determine the warrant price. These included the price of the underlying stock, the strike price, the volatility, the time to expiration, and the interest rate level. 
There were all the same factors that everyone today agrees determine option prices. I started thinking about what formula might define the warrant price. That fall, I transferred to the University of California at Irvine, UCI. On my first day on campus, I was telling the head of the School of Information and Computer Science about my efforts to derive a warrant pricing model, and he told me that there was someone else at the university doing the same thing. That person turned out to be Sheen Kassoff, who had already written a thesis that contained a theoretical model for determining warrant prices. It wasn't a very good model, but it wasn't bad. It was certainly much better than not having any model. Kassoff had already been trading warrants and making fairly steady money by hedging his warrant positions. We started working together, a joint endeavor that ultimately led to our co-authoring Beat the Market. Did Beat the Market have an option pricing formula in it? It had the Kassoff's empirically-based formula. How close was that to the formula you eventually developed? It was entirely different. Why would you write a book telling people how to price warrants and find mispriced trade opportunities when that information was not yet out there? We actually answer that question in the book. We thought it was only a matter of time before other people came up with similar discoveries. We reasoned that if we were the first to write about it, prospective investors would read the book and come to us, and we would be able to manage money. Do you think that was the right decision? Don't you think you and Kassif might have been better off exploiting the warrant trading on your own instead of publishing the ideas? I don't think so, because historically ideas don't just appear in one place. They tend to appear in several places at almost the same time. Like Newton and Leibniz. Exactly, or Darwin and Wallace. When did you start managing money? It sort of happened on its own while I was at UCI. Both Kassif and I were managing our own accounts. Word got out on campus and people started asking us to manage their money. People who invested were making over 20% per year and they told their friends. Before long, I had a dozen accounts and a lot of happy people on campus. What was the strategy you were using at the time? The theme in Beat the Market was that warrants with less than two years to run typically traded at premiums that were too high. The typical trade we did was to short the warrant and hedge it by buying the stock. Delta hedging? We started out with a static hedge and then decided that dynamic delta hedging was better. Did you and Kassif manage money together? No, because we had different ideas of how we believed the strategy should be implemented. Kassoff thought he could tell something about the direction of stock prices and would sometimes take a fundamental view on a stock, whereas I was afraid to do that because I didn't believe I had any forecasting power. I thought we should always hedge to be delta neutral. So we went our separate ways. He and his brother started a managed money business while I managed my individual accounts for a while. When did you develop your own option pricing model? In 1967, I took some of the ideas about how to price warrants and the random character of stock prices by Paul Kuttner and thought I could derive a formula if I made the simplifying assumption that all investments grew at the risk-free rate. Since the purchase or sale of warrants combined with delta-neutral hedging led to a portfolio with very little risk, 
It seemed very plausible to me that the risk-free assumption would lead to the correct formula. The result was an equation that was equivalent to the future Black-Scholes formula. I started using this formula in 1967. Did you apply your formula, that is the future Black-Scholes formula, to identify overpriced warrants and then Delta hedge those positions? I didn't have enough money to have a diversified warrant portfolio and to also place the hedge, since each side of a hedge position requires separate margin. I used the formula to identify the most extremely overpriced warrants. I found warrants that were selling at two or three times what my formula said they should be priced at. So I just went naked, short warrants. Selling warrants without a hedge seems to be in total contradiction to your desire to minimize risk. What if the market had a large rally? That is exactly what happened. In 1967 to 1968, there was a large bull market. Small cap stocks were up 84% in 1967 and 36% in 1968. It was a terrible time to have net short exposure. However, the formula was good enough and the warrants were so overpriced that I still broke even on the naked short positions. The formula really proved itself under the most adverse circumstances. As far as I know, the short warrant positions I implemented during 1967 to 1968 were the first actual application of the Black-Scholes formula in the markets. When did Black-Scholes publish their formula? I believe they discovered it in 1969 and published it in 1972 or 1973. Did you consider publishing your formula? The option pricing formula seemed to me to be a big edge on everybody else, so I was happy just to use it. By 1969, I had started my first hedge fund, Princeton Newport Partners, and I thought that if I published the formula, I would lose the edge that was helping my investors. I thought the best thing would be to keep quiet and just keep using it. It was like having a card-counting system but not writing a book about it. Once Black and Scholes published their formula, it was too late. I don't have any regrets. I believe that convertible bond arbitrage was probably the core strategy used by Princeton Newport Partners. Did you come up with innovations to the strategy that you can talk about now? A convertible bond is a corporate bond that holders can convert into a fixed number of shares at a specified price. In effect, a convertible bond is a combination of a corporate bond and a call option. Because the embedded option has monetary value, convertible bonds will pay lower interest rates than corporate bonds. Convertible arbitrage funds will typically buy convertible bonds and hedge by shorting sufficient stock to neutralize the long exposure implied by the embedded call option, an activity called delta hedging. Originally, the embedded optionality in convertible bonds tended to be underpriced, and convertible arbitrage funds could earn substantial profits by buying underpriced convertible bonds and hedging the market risk with short stock positions. While the core strategy remained unchanged, increased competition drove down mispricings and made the sophistication of the convertible bond pricing model more important. In the simple convertible bond pricing model, a convertible bond is treated like a corporate bond with a warrant attached. The corporate bond is assumed to provide a floor to how low the convertible price can go. So if you have a 5% B-grade convertible bond, 
the assumption is that the price will never be less than a 5% non-convertible P-grade bond. We learned that if the stock price fell sufficiently far, then the grade of the bond would also fall, and consequently, the assumed price floor was not a floor. We were able to build that characteristic into the model and get a much more accurate convertible bond pricing model as a result. Our model also analyzed the entire family of related instruments to the underlying stock, which included convertible bonds, options, warrants, and convertible preferreds to find optimal hedge combinations across all these related instruments. After Princeton Newport Partners closed, I called up Fisher Black because I thought we had a better convertible bond model than anyone else and wanted to see if I could sell it to Goldman Sachs. Fisher Black flew out and spent three days reviewing our model. He agreed that it looked very good, but the problem was that the coding of the model was tailored to the digital equipment computers we used, which meant they would have had to recode the program to run it on their equipment. So he ended up not buying it. The following two or three years, he built his own convertible bond model. I don't know whether he used any of our ideas, but it really doesn't matter. How important was determining the optimal bet size in your trading success? How and why did you decide to use the Kelly Criterion as the method for determining bet size? The Kelly Criterion is the fraction of capital to wager to maximize compounded growth of capital. Even when there is an edge, beyond some threshold, larger bets will result in lower compounded return because of the adverse impact of volatility. The Kelly Criterion defines this threshold. The Kelly Criterion indicates that the fraction that should be wagered to maximize compounded return over the long run equals F equals PW minus PL over W, where F equals Kelly Criterion fraction of capital to bet. W equals dollars one per dollar wagered, i.e. win size divided by loss size. PW equals probability of winning. PL equals probability of losing. When win size and loss size are equal, the formula reduces to F equals PW minus PL. For example, if a trader loses $1,000 on losing trades and gains $1,000 on winning trades, and 60% of all trades are winning trades, the Kelly Criterion indicates an optimal trade size equal to 20%, 0.60 minus 0.40 equals 0.20. As another example, if a trader wins $2,000 on winning trades and loses $1,000 on losing trades, and the probability of winning and losing are both equal to 50%, the Kelly criterion indicates an optimal trade size equal to 25% of capital. 0.50 minus 0.50 over 2 equals 0.25. Proportional overbetting is more harmful than underbetting. For example, betting half the Kelly criterion will reduce compounded return by 25%, while betting double the Kelly criterion will eliminate 100% of the gain. Betting more than double the Kelly criterion will result in an expected negative compound return, regardless of the edge on any individual bet. The Kelly criterion implicitly assumes that there is no minimum bet size. This assumption prevents the possibility of total loss. If there is a minimum trade size, as is the case in most practical investment and trading situations, then ruin is possible if the amount falls below the minimum possible bet size. 
I learned about the Kelly Criterion from Claude Shannon back at MIT. Shannon had worked with Kelly at Bell Labs. I guess Shannon was the leading light at Bell Labs, and Kelly was perhaps the second most significant scientist there. When Kelly wrote his paper in 1956, Shannon refereed it. When I told Shannon about my blackjack betting systems, he told me to look at Kelly's paper in deciding how much to bet because in favorable situations, you will want to bet more than in unfavorable situations. I read the Kelly paper, and it made a lot of sense to me. The Kelly criterion of what fraction of your capital to bet seemed like the best strategy over the long run. When I say long run, a week playing blackjack in Vegas may not sound very long, but long run refers to the number of bets that are placed, and I would be placing thousands of bets in a week. I would get to the long run pretty fast in a casino. In the stock market, it's not the same thing. A year of placing trades in the stock market will not be a long run. But there are situations in the stock market where you get to the long run pretty fast. For example, statistical arbitrage. In statistical arbitrage, you would place tens or hundreds of thousands of trades in a year. The Kelly criterion is the bet size that will produce the greatest expected growth rate in the long term. If you can calculate the probability of winning on each bet or trade and the ratio of the average win to average loss, then the Kelly criterion will give you the optimal fraction to bet so that your long-term growth rate is maximized. The Kelly criterion will give you a long-term growth trend. The percentage deviations around that trend will decline as the number of bets increases. It's like the law of large numbers. For example, if you flip a coin ten times, the deviation from the expected value of five will, by definition, be small. It can't be more than five. But in percentage terms, the deviations can be huge. If you flip a coin one million times, the deviation in absolute terms will be much larger, but in percentage terms, it will be very small. The same thing happens with the Kelly criterion. In percentage terms, the results tend to converge on the long-term growth trend. If you use any other criterion to determine bet size, the long-term growth rate will be smaller than for the Kelly criterion. For betting in casinos, I choose the Kelly criterion because I wanted the highest long-term growth rate. There are, however, safer paths that have smaller drawdowns and a lower probability of ruin. I understand that if you know your edge and it is precisely defined, which of course is not true in the markets, then the Kelly criterion is the amount you should bet to maximize the compounded return and that betting either a smaller or larger fraction will give you a smaller return. But what I don't understand is that the Kelly criterion seems to give all the weight to the return side. The only way the Kelly criterion reflects volatility is through its impact on return. Besides the fact that people are uncomfortable with high volatility, there is the very practical consideration that your down-and-out point is not zero, as the Kelly criterion implicitly assumes, but rather your maximum tolerable drawdown. It seems to me that the criterion should be what maximizes growth subject to the constraint of minimizing the risk of reaching your cutout point. Suppose you have a bankroll of $1 million and your maximum tolerable drawdown is 200000 then from the Kelly Criterion perspective, you don't have $1 million in capital, you have 200000 
So, in your example, you still apply the Kelly criterion, but you apply it to 200,000. When you played blackjack, did you apply the Kelly criterion straightforward? Yes, assuming I was sure the dealer was not cheating because my objective was to make the most money in the least time. What about when you managed the fund? When I managed the fund, I wasn't forced to make a Kelly criterion decision. If you use hedges to theoretically neutralize your risk, then the Kelly criterion might well imply using leverage. In Princeton Newport Partners, where all positions were hedged, I found out that I couldn't leverage up my portfolio as much as the Kelly criterion said I should. Because? Because the brokerage firms wouldn't give me that much borrowing power. Does that imply that you would have traded the Kelly criterion if it was feasible in a practical sense? I probably wouldn't have, because if you bet half the Kelly amount, you get about three-quarters of the return with half the volatility. So it is much more comfortable to trade. I believe that betting half Kelly is psychologically much better. I think there is a more core reason why betting less than the Kelly amount would always be the rational decision in the case of trading. There is an important distinction between trading and playing a game such as blackjack. In blackjack, theoretically, you can know the precise probabilities, but in trading, the probability of winning is always an estimate, and often a very rough one. Moreover, the amount of extra gain foregone by betting less than the Kelly criterion is much smaller than the amount that would be lost by betting more than the Kelly criterion by the same percentage. Given the uncertainty of the probability of winning and trading combined with the inherent asymmetry and returns around the Kelly fraction, it would seem that the rational choice is to always bet less than the Kelly criterion, even if you can handle the volatility. In addition, there is the argument that for virtually any investor, the marginal utility of an extra gain is smaller than the marginal utility of an equal percentage loss. That's true. Say I am playing Casino Blackjack and I know what the odds are. Do I bet full Kelly? Probably not quite. Why? Because sometimes the dealer will cheat me. So the probabilities are a little different from what I calculated because there may be something else going on in the game that is outside my calculations. Now go to Wall Street. We are not able to calculate exact probabilities in the first place. In addition, there are things that are going on that are not part of one's knowledge at the time that affect the probabilities. So you need to scale back a certain extent because overbetting is really punishing. You get both a lower growth rate and much higher variability. Therefore, something like half Kelly is probably a prudent starting point. Then you might increase from there if you are more certain about the probabilities and decrease if you are less sure about the probabilities. In practice, did you end up gravitating to half Kelly? I was never forced to make that decision because there were so many trade opportunities that I usually couldn't put on more than a moderate fraction of Kelly on any single trade. Once in a while, there would be an exceptional situation, and I would hit it pretty hard. One good example was AT&T and the Baby Bells. Old AT&T stock was going to be exchanged for the new stock plus stock in the seven Baby Bells. You could buy the old AT&T and short the new AT&T when issued and lock a price spread of about three-fourths percent. How large did you put on that trade? Five million shares, which was equal to $330 million. 
It was the largest trade done on the New York Stock Exchange up until that point in time. What was your capital base at the time? Around 70 million. How did you determine what size to put on? That was all we could get. I assume you did the trade that large because it was the proverbial risk-free trade. That's the way it looked, but to be clear, there are no zero-risk trades. Do you want to expound? There was some remote possibility that we overlooked something. There is always the possibility that there is some unknown factor. How did you first get involved in statistical arbitrage? In 1979, we launched a research effort that I called the Indicators Project. We looked for indicators that might have some forecasting power, items such as earning surprises, dividend payout rates, and book-to-price. We had a list of about 30 or 40 of these indicators that we investigated. As part of this project, one of the researchers looked at stocks that were most up and stocks that were most down during the recent past. He found that the stocks that were most up tended to underperform the market in the next period, while the stocks that were most down tended to outperform the market. That finding led to a strategy of buying a diversified portfolio of the most down stocks and selling a diversified portfolio of the most up stocks. We called that strategy MUD for most up, most down. My friend UCI mathematician William F. Donahue used to joke, little realizing how close he was to a deep truth. Thorpe, my advice is to buy low and sell high. We found that this market-neutral strategy had about a 20% annual return before costs. It had fairly high risk because the two sides did not track as closely as we would have liked. There were two issues. One was to get the risk down, and the other was to get the transaction costs down. We felt we could get the cost down and that the risk wouldn't be a problem because the strategy would be part of a much larger portfolio, so it seemed like a viable strategy. You settled on using the most up and most down stocks as the most effective indicators, but I'm curious as to whether any of the other indicators you tested also showed efficacy. They did. For that period of time, we found a very marked pattern for stocks, depending on whether or not they paid dividends. Stocks that paid no dividends seemed to have above-normal returns. Stocks that paid low dividends had below-normal returns, but as the dividend payout went up, the total return tended to increase as well. There was effectively a U-shaped curve that favored buying stocks with no dividends and high dividends and selling stock with low dividends. Earning surprises also seemed to have an impact for a considerable period of time, weeks and even months, suggesting the market was slow to assimilate this type of information. These were not all original discoveries. We combed the literature and tried to stay current in the network of people conducting this type of research combining the research available from other sources with our own original ideas gave us a fairly long list of indicators that seemed to have an edge. But Princeton Newport was doing so well on a risk-adjusted basis with the strategies it had already that we put the statistical arbitrage strategy aside. It wasn't clear that the marginal improvement that could have been obtained by adding statistical arbitrage to the existing strategies warranted diverting the resources that would have been needed for its implementation. When did you turn back to it again? 
1985, we placed an ad in the Wall Street Journal looking for people who had reliable ideas that would produce provable excess returns. One of the calls we received in response to that ad was from Jerry Bamberger, who turned out to be the person who had discovered statistical arbitrage at Morgan Stanley. My recollection is that he developed the strategy around 1982 and was eventually shouldered aside by Nunzio Tartaglia, who was his immediate superior. Tartaglia had come in some time later and took over the strategy, so Bamberger was disaffected and left Morgan Stanley. He saw our ad and came out to Newport Beach for an interview. He was very secretive at first, but as soon as he started talking about his strategy, I realized it was the same statistical arbitrage approach we had come up with, except that he had added a dimension that significantly reduced the risk. The innovation that Bamberger had added via our own strategy was that he grouped the stocks by industry and set up long-short portfolios within each industry. By adding industry neutrality, he significantly reduced the risk of the strategy. When Bamberger explained his industry-neutral approach, was your immediate thought, that's obvious, why didn't we think of that? When Bamberger explained his portfolio structure, I said, yes, that's obvious. But I didn't say, why didn't we think of that, probably because we had put the project aside. I believe that if we had decided to include statistical arbitrage in our portfolio, we probably would have migrated to the sector-neutral approach rather quickly. After Bamberger told you what he was doing, where did it go from there? We created a joint venture that Bamberger ran from New York. We funded it, and he programmed it. I'm curious. You already essentially knew what Bamberger was telling you, and his innovation was one that you could have easily implemented and would likely have done on your own had you not put the statistical arbitrage project aside. So you really didn't need Bamberger. Given that, what was your motivation for entering into a profit-sharing agreement with him? It was almost like a franchise operation. He was very smart and very efficient. He got his own people together and ran his own shop. It was well worth paying him to do all this. We probably would have incurred similar costs doing it in-house. So it wasn't a matter of paying Bamberger for the idea, but rather the execution of the idea. Essentially, you felt here was somebody who clearly understood the concept and could implement an idea that you weren't using anyway. Exactly. There were almost no administrative costs in working with him. He was also someone who was very honest and principled. In a series of articles Thorpe wrote about his experiences with statistical arbitrage, he provided the following character sketch of Bamberger. Jerry Bamberger was a tall, trim, orthodox Jew with a very high IQ, an original way of looking at problems in finance, and a wry sense of humor. He spent several weeks working with us in Newport Beach. After a few days, I noticed that Jerry always brought a brown bag for lunch and always ate a tuna salad sandwich. I finally had to ask, How often do you have a tuna salad sandwich for lunch? Jerry said, Every day for the last six years. He was a heavy smoker, and I'm extremely sensitive to tobacco smoke. We did not hire smokers nor allow smoking in our office, so part of our negotiation was about how to handle this. We respected each other and worked out a compromise that met each of our needs. Whenever Jerry needed a cigarette, he would step outside our ground floor garden office. How did the fund work out? 
It ran for a couple of years and did quite well, and then the returns started to decline. By that time, Bamberger had made a fair amount of money from the joint venture, and he decided to retire. At that point, I refocused on the strategy and decided there was a better way to do it, which could get the return back up again. My thought was to make the strategy factor neutral. We did a principal components analysis of the portfolio and tried to neutralize the principal factors. What specific factors did you end up neutralizing the portfolio against? In factor analysis, there are two different approaches. One is what I would call an economic factors analysis, in which you actually know what the factors are, such as equity index prices, oil prices, etc. The other approach is abstract factor analysis, where all you have are the returns for each security, and you process it with mathematical models and end up with a collection of abstract factors that don't necessarily coincide with economic factors. The abstract factors best describe the actual historical data you are using. What is this type of approach called where the factors aren't specific items, but rather mathematical constructs? I call it abstract factor analysis, and principal component analysis is another version of this approach. If you have a huge collection of data points, you can find these things called principal components, which are vectors in the data space that are perpendicular to each other, and they best describe the data. Is the perpendicularity the reason why multicollinearity is not a problem? Yes. In abstract factor analysis, you don't have that issue. But with economic factors, you can have factors that are closely related to each other. That sounds like it's a big advantage for using abstract factors over economic factors. Yes, I think it's the way to go. The abstract factors can often get identified with specific economic factors or linear combinations of those factors. For example, it always turns out that the biggest abstract factor, or equivalently the biggest principal component, is the stock market. But you actually don't need that information. It is only an interesting aside. You could be completely ignorant of the real world and still apply abstract factor analysis. That's right. We applied the factor neutrality approach, and the returns went up and risk went way down. What year did you make the change? We started researching this idea in 1986 because we saw the returns of Bamberger's approach beginning to decline. So you began working on this approach while Bamberger was still there? Yes, he left in 1987. Did you completely lose touch with Bamberger after he retired? Actually, in the mid-1990s, his wife contacted me and asked if I would write a recommendation for him for a law school application. I was happy to do it. As I understand, he did go to law school and get his degree, but I don't know what happened to him afterward. You took statistical arbitrage to the next level by applying factor analysis. Where did it go from there? There was a hiatus in running statistical arbitrage between the time Bamberger left and the factor analysis approach was implemented. The October 1987 crash occurred during that gap in trading, which is too bad because that was the single best period for the strategy up to that point. So we missed out on some really great returns but we still had returns in the high 20s pretty consistently until 1989 when Princeton-Newport was wound down after the Princeton office ran into its well-chronicled legal troubles with Giuliani. Can we talk about that episode? 
How did your partnership with Regan, who ran the Princeton office, come about? In 1969, when I met him, Regan was a stockbroker who was looking to do something better than just being a broker. It occurred to him that hedging might be a good way to go and that he should start a partnership to do it. He made a list of four candidates who might be potential partners in such a venture, and I was on that list. He conducted the search shortly after I co-authored Beat the Market with Kassoff, which received a fair amount of publicity. I was looking for someone to do the business and administrative side, so it seemed like a pretty good fit. He was doing the things I didn't want to do, and I was doing the things that he couldn't do. When did you first find out that the Princeton office was being investigated? I first heard about it when someone in our office got a call from a trader in the Princeton office saying that federal agents were spilling off the elevators and grabbing all the records. I found out later that Regan and others in the Princeton office knew something was going on as much as a year earlier because of information requests. So effectively you found out the day before the story ran in the newspapers? Yes. What was your reaction? I had no idea what the motivation for the raid was or what the government was trying to find. Regan never gave you any inkling of what was going on? Not a peep. Were you wrong about your assessment of Regan? I think he evolved over time, and in later years he wasn't the same person I knew when we first formed our partnership. I think success slowly transformed him. What was your response when you found out? I negotiated with Regan and the other defendants of the Princeton office to contribute $2.5 toward their defense, but to cap the partnership's liability to that amount. Their argument was that the partnership should pay the total defense bill, but my attitude was that if they were guilty, then the partnership shouldn't pay anything. So we settled on the $2.5 number. That ended up being much less than the actual legal bill, which totaled over $12 million. So you and Regan were in adversarial roles regarding this matter? Yes, especially since I wasn't getting any information from those guys. They had circled the wagons. How did the Princeton office operate under the circumstances? It was difficult because they were distracted by all the legal stuff, but it was still limping along. Several months after the indictment, I met with Regan and told him, I don't know what is going to happen here. I am willing to run the whole operation until this is all over. If you and the other defendants are willing to step down now, assuming you are acquitted, I will be happy to reinstate all of you at the same terms, and I will put that in writing if you like. But there was absolutely no response. It was like I was talking to a deaf man. I decided this was not the type of relationship I wanted to continue in. Partnership closed shortly afterward except for winding down the existing positions. Did you think of restarting the fund on your own? I didn't want to do all the stuff that was involved in running a hedge fund. That was why I got a partner to run the business side in the first place. I also wanted a little bit of time out. What happened after Princeton Newport Partners shut down? I kept a small staff in the Newport Beach office. During 1990 and 1991, we primarily traded Japanese warrants, which was very profitable until the dealers began dramatically widening the spreads on us. The trades might have had a 30% profit potential, 
but the bid-ask spreads became so wide that the transaction costs were 15%, so we had to give it up as a strategy. Then I heard that statistical arbitrage was doing well, and one of my largest previous investors wanted me to resurrect it as an investable strategy. In 1992, we restarted the strategy. It only made about 5% or 6% in that first year, but we were encouraged because it seemed that there was no reason other than random fluctuation for the below-normal return that year. How did the strategy perform in the intervening years after the closing of Princeton Newport Partners when you weren't trading it? The period between 1989, when we closed Princeton Newport Partners, and August 1992, when we restarted statistical arbitrage, would have been good. We happened to restart trading in a low spot for the strategy, but we stayed with it, and the performance got better and better. For the approximate 10 years we ran the program, returns before fees and leverage averaged 21% annualized, with a standard deviation of only 7%. Why did you shut the program down in 2002 when it had such a strong return-slash-risk track record? There were a couple of reasons. First, returns seemed to be declining. I had no idea whether this trend was temporary or permanent, but I suspected it would continue because there was much more money chasing the same strategy than ever before. We could have attempted to continue innovating to stay ahead of the trend and keep returns up, but that would have meant a lot of thinking and effort on my part. At that point, I said to myself, life is getting shorter, it's time to do some other things. Another reason for shutting down the fund was that I had a couple of key employees who wanted a much larger share of the pie. An unreasonably large amount, I thought, so I said, That is too much. Goodbye. Did you ever again look at how the program was performing? We did look at it a few years ago. It was running about 8% annualized, which is not too bad in a 2% world, but not good enough to make me want to go back and do it. What was your involvement with David Shaw, who was another relatively early practitioner of statistical arbitrage? In 1988, David Shaw had left Solomon and was looking for someone to fund him in a statistical arbitrage startup. I didn't know exactly what he wanted when he came out here, but we talked for about six hours, and it seemed that his strategy was redundant with ours. So we parted on friendly terms. So it was basically a matter of you both realizing that you were working on the same thing and there really wasn't a match. That is exactly right. What did you do after you shut down the Statistical Arbitrage Fund in 2002? I managed my investments in other people's hedge funds. Do you have any recommendations on investing in hedge funds? I don't have any recommendations now because I have run low on hedge fund candidates. Why is that? Twenty years ago, I understood the details of the hedge fund world very well, because I was running one myself, and I knew a lot of the players and methodologies. I had a pretty good idea of which hedge funds had an edge and which ones were just asset gatherers. Since then, there has been an explosion in the number of hedge funds and assets under management, trends that have been accompanied by the entry of many more mediocre players, the increase in assets under management also tended to lower the return per dollar invested as more money chased similar strategies. Finding the good hedge funds also became more difficult, as there were much larger numbers of managers to wade through. 
Over the years, hedge funds began to shift from having edges to being asset gatherers. At the same time, the fees hedge funds charged increased. There was a time when a flat 20% profit incentive fee would do it. Then it became 20% incentive plus 1% management fee, and then 2% management fee. All of these trends made it more difficult for the investor to extract good returns from hedge funds. Do you feel the hedge fund industry is following the path of the mutual fund industry, which became equivalent to the market, or actually worse than the market once you take into account transaction costs? I believe the overall returns make hedge funds a less compelling investment than they once were. Where do you see the steady-state equilibrium for the hedge fund industry? It seems to me that the steady state would be when there is no excess risk-adjusted return in the hedge funds. Wouldn't you expect there to be some excess return, simply because hedge fund investors have to be compensated for accepting greater illiquidity? I agree with that. Where do you think we are now? Do hedge funds still have some premium in risk-adjusted returns versus other investments? My instincts are that they still have an edge, but not by very much. Do you still invest in hedge funds? I haven't found new good ones to invest in for a while. If I did, though, I would happily invest. So you are still